0: Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. In this episode of Criticism in Conversation, two art critics and historians discuss conflict of interest in contemporary art criticism. Tyler Green, the host of the popular Modern Art Notes podcast, and Catherine G. Wagley, a critic who regularly publishes with Artnet News, the LA Review of Books, and Momus, frame the stakes and risks of a critic writing on contemporary and even historical figures in art, especially in light of the market's increasingly firm grip on our discourse. In this episode, we can hear them debate the most ethical approach to navigating nepotism, allyship, and critical distance in contemporary art writing. And as a centerpiece to this discussion, they cite the recent example of an art historian outing two leading art publications for acquiescing to the control exercised by a leading gallery over the material published on its artists. In an art world where conflict of interest is endemic and normalized, our attention should be heightened, especially regarding the powers that dictate the terms by which we critique, historicize, and debate. The in which the influence was supposed
1: to have happened was created by the one who originated that our historical narrative.
2: Um, she reviewed a Clark show, in the New York Times, when she was on the board of the Clark. <laughs> it's
0: really
1: refreshing to have editors who have your back. They want my criticism to be thoughtful, but, but they, there's no other agenda. Beautiful, thank you. So, I mean, part of the reason that I wanted to talk to you about this subject, or I thought it would be an interesting conversation, is that you've so consistently called out the blurriness between hypocrisy and art institutions and art publications, and the blurriness between um, museum gallery PRs and the art press. I think that's the other side of this issue of conflict of interest in art writing. One side being how an art writer navigates it within their own text and the artists they choose to write about. But the other being how conflict of interest at a larger scale affects the way art history gets told and which art histories get told. So, I mean, for me, I think I have a different relationship to the day-to-day conflict of interest issues than you do because I've become friends with a number of my subjects over the years. And I think you said that's not something that you've struggled with as much.
2: Yeah, you know, because I lived in Washington for for 20 years and there are certainly artists in Washington and certainly experiences I had with artists in Washington were important and sometimes even formative. But because my forays into New York and LA, tended to be short. And my meetings when I was in those places while still living in Washington tended to be with peers and colleagues rather than with artists. Um, I never became as artist dependent or artist oriented as a lot of writers and editors. Um, I was always more kind of I think some of this is just my natural interests, too. But, I mean, I was always more interested in in work product, whether that was a book, someone's book, or someone's exhibition, or someone's retrospective, or kind of the larger career summations, uh, larger idea-driven exhibitions. So, yeah, I never ended up as tight with artists as a lot of other critics.
1: Yeah, I remember when I first started writing, I did not know many artists, and I also didn't know the personal dynamics of the art world very well at all, and so I didn't realize as a reader that what I was reading was sometimes the results of interpersonal relationships. Or like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known if I was reading, say, Jerry Saltz on Carol Dunham that that might have been a problem.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: until until a few years in, like once I'd been doing it for a few years and I'd been around and I, I started to see those things and I started to see the way they manifested in criticism and to see how critics would write about, or art writers who were writing more in journalistic modes too, would write about people that I knew they were friends with or people that I knew they dated and not acknowledge that. And I was like, whoa, this is, so this is something that I need to pay attention to as a reader.
2: Or as an historian and scholar.
1: right. But I didn't I didn't. It took me a while before it started to be something I worried about as a writer, because it took a few years before my friends were people who were actually exhibiting, or I, I would write reviews and then do a studio visit, and then the conversation would keep going, which is great. It's great for your life. But for my work, I had to create new rules or be careful in different ways.
2: And of course, this isn't a new thing. Any any historian or scholar of early 20th century art made in Paris mm-hmm. has to know the webs of people and camps and alliances. I found a great example in 19th century America. After John Muir mm-hmm. uh, moved out of Yosemite and into San Francisco, one of the places Probably because of Muir's knowledge of Carlton Watkins' pictures of Yosemite and volcanoes like Mount Shasta and the glaciers on Shasta, Muir decided one of the things he was interested in was the San Francisco art world. Um, The biggest and most important painter in San Francisco at the time was a guy named William Keith who was uh, one of Watkins' best friends. So what's the first thing John Muir does? Um, He writes a review of a William Keith show for a San Francisco newspaper. Um, and quicker than you can say Scots-Irish. They both were. Keith and Muir were, were best buds and paling around the Sierra and Western Mountain Ranges.
1: Yeah, there's like Ruskin did that. It's this long history of how history gets written. But did Muir ever, um, was that something he acknowledged? Or is it something that you discover in?
2: So we don't know, you know, because the 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco has, of course, sadly deprived us of much of our knowledge of, the pre-1906 West, my sense is that that was how they met. But that it has been going on for a long time on multiple continents doesn't mean, to me anyway, that is the art world professionalized and as journalism professionalized and as, as the scholarly and research-oriented worlds professionalized over the course of the 20th century, I mean, to me, that professionalization should extend into criticism.
1: Right, there's, a, there's an example that I go back to a lot because it just kind of blows my mind, um, which is Clement Greenberg and, framing Helen Frankenthaler as the forerunner or the great influencer of Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland. Like that color field painting came from Helen Frankenthaler, and um, he wrote an essay in which he cited her as, he cited a studio visit that Lewis and Noland took to her studio as being kind of the beginning of them realizing that color field was what they should pursue. And Clement Greenberg was dating Helen Frankenthaler at the time of the studio visit. And he's the one that invited them, which he never, ever acknowledges at all. Um, It comes up later in an interview that Helen Frankenthaler gave where she's being pushed to kind of talk about her influence on Lewis and Nolan. And she's like, I I can't talk about that. Like, that was Clement. That was Clem's thing. (laughs) But it doesn't matter because he wrote the essay. And I think in her obituary in The New York Times, it was cited in a recent review that Roberta Smith wrote of a show that included her work. She cited that influence she'd had on Lewis and Noland. And that sort of thing. like that sort of thing starts to seem really dangerous to me. Like it's not not that maybe she didn't have an influence on color field painting, but that the situation in which the influence was supposed to have happened was created by the one who originated that art historical narrative.
2: And you're not even, you haven't even begun to mention Greenberg's own collecting.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I was just reading this crazy Seattle Times, or not Seattle Times, it was a the Stranger article by Jen Graves about this critic Matthew Kangas who I I hadn't read that story where he was not only collecting the work of artists that he wrote about he was writing reviews and then asking them after publishing a positive review going to them and saying where's my painting when can I come over to choose it (laughs) and the artists were giving that to him
2: because they were afraid not to
1: right in this era that power seems kind of foreign but um I know that that's not the case. And I also know that artists perceive critics as having a power that I don't necessarily perceive critics as having sometimes.
2: I've had so many dealers tell me that if Roberta Smith, specifically Roberta Smith, reviews a show of a young artist, that that sells out the show and the next two. And that's the only example of that I can think of ever, ever having heard about.
1: Huh. Yeah. I'm surprised, actually. I mean, that's
2: hearsay. I don't, you know.
1: If, but Right. But, <laughs> if that's true, I'm surprised. I,
2: I, 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 I would not be. I am, I am not. But aside from that very specific example, the rapid, unimaginable emergence of mainstreaming and growth of contemporary art departments and halls in every town with a beltway in America has led to curators having um, the clout that critics in one city once had. I think. That's, a, you know, um, yeah. one of the, you know, I... You know, I guess two two things when I when I think of all this that I think about a lot. One, over the last thirty or so years, art criticism has not professionalized as an independent thing. Um, the number of critics who derive the majority of their income from their writing work is extremely small. It's probably in the low single digits. Mm-hmm. So that leaves academics who write a lot of a lot about contemporary art, whether it's criticism or not. It ends up being called that. And so as a result, people who dabble in writing responses to art of the present can kind of do whatever they want. Um, There's no anywhere near agreed upon idea of what the ethics and professional standards are for writing criticism. And so everybody's left to, to just kind of do what they want, which is fine. Some people are extremely ethical about it. And some people, you know, have a much more liberal approach to their range of dealings. Um, I mean, for me, I stopped writing criticism, um, you know, three or four or five years ago when I decided to write books. But when I was writing criticism regularly, my, my, my thing was act like I'm still a working journalist. Cause at the time I thought I was, and I think I was. Um, and so the standards that would exist within journalism should exist for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't collect or own the art of people I'm writing about. I can't, put myself in a position to potentially benefit financially from having written something about someone. I mean, the same standards that applied in my writing for newspapers, um, I thought should apply to when I was writing about art and artists. The other weird thing, and and I think this has been enormously more impactful than people have taken it as being, is when the Warhol Foundation decided to create a program to support criticism, instead of calling it an art criticism and funding criticism or journalism, um, it it created this thing called the art writing program. Well, what the heck is art writing? I mean, a press release from Gagosian is art writing. Mm -hmm. And so that signaled an, an institutional, honestly, disregard for critics and criticism as something meaningful and independent. Um, and and signaled that oh you know who cares anything goes, and, right. and the field has followed that.
1: Interesting. I think though, like you brought up, having come to criticism from journalism, and I think that's a really rare situation in art writing, in like art criticism, art journalism. A lot of people come to it. I don't know from curatorial, especially the the people whose reviews are appearing like in the back of Art Forum or in Art in America or art magazines, flash art, they come to it from curatorial studies or critical studies programs or from art making backgrounds.
2: I've heard of those programs, but I don't understand what they are. So
1: (laughs) I mean, maybe the programs are less the point I'm making than that. They're not coming with any standards from Uh, a journalistic uh, uh, world uh, or, you know, they're coming with the art world as they're already their primary audience.
2: But if you're writing, I mean, but for me, if you're writing for the LA Times or you're writing for, you know, a traditional monthly or whatever publication more explicitly at the LA Times than at other places, there is a, a, an expectation, if not specific rules regarding professional and ethical comportment you know, I don't read Art Forum or Art in America or those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know who's writing in the back of their book or right. what their rules and guidelines are, if any. I know that when I see stuff from Art News Online, it's effectively Art Gallery PR. That doesn't lead me to believe they standards up.
1: Right. But also the fact that, um, and this maybe relates to what you were saying about the Warhol Foundation, the fact that so few art critics are doing this as their main career means that a lot of them are doing it precisely as a pathway to a more, I don't know, like you you write about art for these magazines in order to get noticed by institutions or galleries that could give you curatorial opportunities. Or Or for
2: lines on your CV as you work toward Mm -hmm. tenurehood.
1: Yeah, totally. That that it's a path to academic validity rather than a real commitment to um, criticism. Or, I mean, maybe that's not fair. Like, I'm sure a lot of those people would say they're really committed to criticism. It's just that it's inwardly focused. Like, it's focused on the world that they're negotiating rather than focused on art as something that talks about greater things like culturally.
2: You know, they're writing for their tenure committee rather than to share ideas, context and perspective on an artist to a broad general audience. I mean whatever however that broad general audience would be defined by the publication or whatever, but they're they're writing narrowly, mm-hmm. which happens a lot.
1: Yeah. I think that was what was really great about working for the LA Weekly was that I was never working with editors who gave a damn about the art world. They were always like, "Wait, what if things sounded too insider baseball, they got confused." Good. It is good, but it's definitely not the case in writing for magazines.
2: No. And, you know, one of the the things that we're talking around without mentioning specifically is the very recent news that Steve Nelson, the UCLA professor, broke about um, his engagement um, on an essay uh, with Aperture Magazine and Freeze. And what, Mm -hmm. what Professor Nelson was insisting upon was a critic's independence and really priority to say what he or she wanted to say and where their research had led about an artist and an artist's work and how that concept of what a critic should do butted heads with people at magazines you know, once reputable magazines. I mean, Aperture Magazine won a National Magazine Award, the highest award you can win in the American magazine industry um, in, in 2018. How, how that insistence upon um, an ideal of independence and, and a practice of independence, but it heads with an art world in which uh, a commercial gallery and an artist might have other ideas in a situation where a commercial gallery and artist believe that all are subservient to, to the market and to them.
1: Yes, and what was interesting, because Steve Nelson posts, after having um, had this essay rejected twice by Aperture and then Freeze magazine, he published it on Hyperallergic with his description or disavowal of what had happened. The essay itself is very positive. like It's a very in-depth look at an artist's work that's trying to broaden the conversation about the work. It's just that he focuses on a body of work that
2: that the commercial gallery didn't necessarily control or want to have in part of the commercial narrative around the artist. Right. Which I thought he made uh, unusually clear. I, you know, one of the things you just don't see is critics or academics or historians or researchers who are writing criticism specifically take on the dominance of the commercial art world in the art world. And, and Nelson absolutely did.
1: Right. Yeah, I've heard off the record, a lot of stories like that, but I never read anything that that clearly laid out. How things had gone down yeah. with editors rejecting a piece for these commercial concerns. And also that he named his editors. I was impressed.
2: It was it was great. And, and, and as to your point about having heard lots of these stories, I mean, a little while back, a major academic publisher came to me with an idea and said, what do you think? Should we do this? And the idea was monographs, peer reviewed monographs published by the academic publisher monographs around single artists of course contemporary art living artists and they wanted to do this as a series and what did I think and I I, I, my response was in some ways a a premonition or summary of what we've just talked about you know it was okay that's great but commercial galleries and artists don't let anybody have the freedom to say what they want about the work right it goes through them and that's not the way it should be and that's not cool it's one of the reasons i stopped writing about contemporary art and you're gonna have a hard time getting that series off the ground because really that stuff extends into estates also and as commercial galleries have heavily moved into representing estates in the last few years Um, it just doesn't leave a lot of room for independent writing and publishing around um, the art of, of the present and recent past.
1: Right. You know, I think a point that was brought up in responses to Stephen Nelson's article was that this is one of the pitfalls of writing about living artists. And I was thinking about that. It's a real point, but also not a great point because you should still be able to write about living artists without that. You know, maybe you take some flack for saying something they don't like but magazines should ideally still publish it because that's how you have a real conversation about what's happening in contemporary art and what it's doing and how it relates to culture but
2: but that assumes those magazines want to have right. that happen
1: but i was thinking like there's um i listened a little bit to one of your episodes this morning with charles ray and it reminded mm-hmm. me of how every time i've written anything about charles Ray he's had an issue with it, even if it's positive, like that I framed things wrong or that I misrepresented what one of his sculptures was doing. And I think that I find that a little bit stressful as a writer, but I also feel like that's part of the game. It's like, I'm going to say, I'm still going to write about Charles Ray, and he's still going to take issue with it for as long as he's around. And that's part of the negotiation.
2: That's part of what happens when you know a newspaper columnist writes about the county board of supervisors, too.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. That it happens in every sphere. Uh, and that if you're too careful about that stuff, you're never actually going to, well, you're, you're never going to have a good conversation that's truthful and transparent. But you're also just always going to be uh, promoting falsehoods because of your omissions, to an extent. And that's, my, that's something that I get really frustrated about, is that I feel like art history is sanitized in a way, uh, especially modern and contemporary 20th century into now that it's a less interesting conversation because we tiptoe around each other.
2: And and I, I, you know, to me, a big question is, would we tiptoe around as much if uh, we wrote for publications that had their own independent authority and that had our backs? Right. Um, I mean, there's no one who can ever write for those two editors or three editors at Freeze and Aperture ever again who who will expect that those editors will value and safeguard their independence or their own thinking.
1: Yeah, which is which is kind of nice to have those names. I was oh, thinking as I imperative. was rereading the article today, yeah, how great it would be that I would kind of like, there's some editors I'd like to out in a thoughtful way. Um, <laughs> but but I, I've been writing a lot for small independent publications like Momus for whom we're doing this podcast and Carla and part of the reason I do it is because it's really refreshing to have editors who have your back they want my criticism to be thoughtful but but they there's no other agenda (laughs) that's really rare I don't have that with a lot of art magazines and I don't have that with a lot of mainstream publications these days either because they want articles that I don't know that have a that have a hook that's really easily promotable Which I I understand, given so many publications are struggling to figure out how to be relevant and profitable right now, and what they think that means is not having thoughtful criticism or not having things that require slow engagement. I believe that's wrong, but I I understand what's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can't imagine in terms of of the print mags the american print mags a magazine ever siding with a writer over a commercial gallery or an auction house's pressure i wrote independently um so you know more or less for all those years on on modern art notes and i had a magazine column in modern painters for a number of years and then before that my my website was you know in kind of an umbrella site called called arts journal um, and in all those, you know, in those 15 years or however many years I did that, only once did I really run into uh, a pressure issue. And that was the director of a very large museum didn't like that I had written kind of a satirical piece making pointed fun, but I think, I hope, smart pointed fun at um, something that that museum was doing. I, I, uh, I think that very week, the New York Rangers had cut a former high draft pick from the same country that this museum was doing a deal. And so, you know, I kind of merged the hockey and the art and kind of had fun with everybody over it. <laughs> um, and this director went absolutely nuts, demanded that Art Info fire me. Uh-oh. And the, the, the guy who was the head of Art Info at the time, a guy named Ben Ginocchio, uh, you know, emailed me and said, well, we're obviously not going to do this and you can write our response to this guy yourself and we'll sign it. And that's that's as much as you can back anybody.
1: right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it's also expensive to, I mean, if you're going to risk a lawsuit.
2: Yeah, but that's mostly what we're not talking about here. I mean, you know, either in in, in that example of that museum, and we've all, you know, we've all had a good laugh, you know, that museum and I have had a good laugh over that in the many years since. But we're not, you know, in the the Nelson Freeze Aperture example, we're not talking about a lawsuit. Right, right. I can't ever remember hearing about lawsuits being threatened over art criticism. You know what we're talking about is advertiser pressure and just simply the way the non-commercial art world kowtows to the commercial art world,
1: and and that there's so many times in which the criticisms that are being leveled are are relatively tame. Like or the or the issue, oh, as yeah. in with Nelson's article, it's just about which work he's writing about, not even how he's writing about it. Yeah, and I've had that. I've had that happen a few times where I've not not with a publication but with a museum or a curator or an artist whose work I'm writing about they get really frustrated about framing or about which question I ask them or when I'm actually writing a relatively positive piece and then it seems like like everybody's so careful about their image and wanting to make sure that anybody they give access to is promoting the exact same image they want to promote.
2: So what you're saying is that uh, art criticism has turned into Hollywood PR?
1: It, to an extent, or that's the role that institutions and commercial venues would like it to play.
2: Yeah, no, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah sorry, that's what I meant. Yeah, no, I think that that's, no, I think that's hugely True, And I can think of very few exceptions to that. I mean, one of the reasons, so there were a lot of reasons I stopped writing criticism. I guess a big one was that I wanted to write a book instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there are only so many hours in the day, but that I enjoyed keeping my feet in the present. And so I started a podcast because one, I could choose who I talked to, um, or at least who I wanted to talk to. That inherent in recorded audio is an inability to futz with it. it's just there, an artist can't go back later and tweak it or change it or edit out interest, Mm -hmm. and that I would retain some, uh, this isn't quite the right word, but some priority, that the questions would be mine. Right. That I would get to learn from people, artists, historians, authors, whomever, the things I wanted to know, which I don't think, even when in the commercial art world you do, you you, you get Q and A's, those are so heavily edited that I don't think you get that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was wondering actually, as I was listening to some of the episodes this morning, you take a really, you take a pretty level approach. Like it's very open. You're interested in listening. You're asking questions that, you know, seem like they're driven by curiosity more than a than an angle about how to shape the conversation, which creates this sort of, I don't know, maybe level is not the best word, but that sort of that it's kind of even. There's not you're not playing the cheerleader or the critic in this context. And I wondered if I don't know how how doing this has affected your writing or if you've had to make any choices about how to write about people you've interviewed, if that's even an issue that comes up.
2: As far as the interviews I do, the only critical thinking that goes into them is who to invite on the show. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I, I very rarely have... At least with artists, I very rarely have an angle I'm pushing. In fact, maybe never. With, with with When I have historians on or curators on, I will find any opportunity I can to push them toward my minor obsession with Matisse's 1907 Blue Nude, <laughs> um, for example. Um, You know, there's one of those on this week's show with Luke Sison at the Met. So one of the things I realized, um, like maybe the third or fourth week of doing the podcast that I should have realized before, (laughs) before week one was that talking with people and them giving their time to me and to us changes what you can do. You know, I can't invite curator Joe Smith onto the show and take two hours of curator Smith's time and then turn around the next week and slam the show once I've seen it, because we almost always tape episodes before shows go up. But I was quickly okay with that, because when I started doing the podcast, I knew I was gonna stop writing criticism within a year or so, mm-hmm. because I had a book proposal that was out in the market and that I was going to be writing that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you when you do the prep, you know, hours and hours of prep to prepare to talk to an artist, you do have things that you come to think about the work. and. I definitely think oh you know maybe in five years or 10 years or 15 years when uh, you know I'm not doing a podcast every week when I'm not writing two books at once this is somebody I would like to write something substantial about someday or this is a body of work I would like and yes that I I definitely file that kind of thing away in the back of my mind and I don't know what if anything I'll ever do with any of it but maybe yeah I mean, it's a little different with artists and curators. If I'm inviting an artist onto the show, I like the work. I like the work a lot. I like the work enough to want to spend hours preparing to talk to the artist, Mm -hmm. or at the very least, I'm intrigued by the work enough to spend hours figuring out what I think is in the work. Um, With curators and historians, it's a little different. I think I push back a little bit more and question choices and decisions mm-hmm. a little bit more, especially if it's an artist or, 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 or period or something I know well. But I, 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 I think and hope that's in the right spirit right. In the spirit of your conclusion is interesting. I'm not sure it's what my conclusion would have been. Let's talk about that space in between. And that's also often, I hope, really good audio. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Asking questions and grappling it's great like it's it's the most exciting part of having i think like like figuring out okay why why is that the story you're telling about this thing which i think again goes back to why why this topic has been so interesting to me and a thing i come back to all the time because it's it is that question of who is being talked about and how and why why is this the story we're telling about these artists and why is this a story that gets repeated all the time like
2: uh, well there's there's something really important in what you just said that I don't want to let slide by and that is whose and what stories get telling. Every data point we have on the commercial art market tells us that the commercial art, art market is interested in white men to an astonishing degree. Not 5149, not 5248, to an astonishing degree. And so that we are in a moment when the commercial art market wields so much influence over what is written by scholars and critics and academics and historians about living artists, all points to one thing about what stories are gonna to get told. This gets right back to your initial questions about critics and friends and who forms the historical narrative that lingers for decades, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah and I want that, I, want, I guess I want, I want to go back. <laughs> like I want to excise or just like suss out the the conflicts of interest that formed those stories. And my hope is that by doing that, you make space now for more diverse conversations because we're not tied to that lineage that wasn't actually the lineage anyway.
2: This, this is a half a step afield, but look at what National Geographic did by examining its own racist past and perpetuation of a colonialist and racist narrative. I mean, I know that's only been two or three months, but I'm pretty surprised that we haven't seen a major art museum decide to do the same thing regarding its own history.
0: You know,
1: I always wonder if it's because we like to see ourselves as so progressive. If there's this myth of the art world's or arts progressiveness that disallows our real acknowledgement of our deep flaws or our actual conservatism or of the like acknowledging those biases also means acknowledging that we were never as progressive as we think we were
2: Oh I, I think that's absolutely true and I, but but I think you know on on this issue of what I, I think that the issues you raised at the beginning of, uh, of the conversation about conflicts and the role and and the impact they have on presence and history and future mm-hmm. I think that's in play is a board of directors going to, you know, reopening the past in the name of doing the progressive right thing has the potential, if not likelihood of exposing conflicts and friendships, which in hindsight might not look so great. That said, I, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to know anything that the Met is doing or thinking, but how great, how great would it be? if the Met called John Edwin Mason, the historian who did the the National Geographic project, the University of Virginia historian who did that project, if the Met called him and said, hey, do that for us, and then simultaneously called Fred Wilson and said, Fred, we know for years that you've said you're done mining the museum, but you've told anybody who would listen for years that the one museum that you would consider reopening the project for is the Met. John Edwin Mason's gonna do this one way and we would like you to do it the other way. And, you know, the exhibition-oriented way, the the display-oriented way. Wow, that would be impactful. I don't know, my interest in ethics and criticism sure didn't make me popular. I mean, um, I remember writing about Grace Gluck reviewing a show at the Clark Art Institute while she sat on the board. Mm -hmm. Um, She reviewed a Clark show in the New York Times when she was on the board of the Clark. Um, and I wrote about that as being preposterous And boy did I get a lot of people In New York mad at me They thought that was just fine And there was a Village Voice art critic Who while he was the Voice's art critic Was working for art fairs And, right. and I Pushed in Vero's phone Um, and how he was in a position to bring galleries and artists into the fairs with which he worked that he was promoting in The Voice and vice versa and how that was an almost unfathomable conflict and I think indeed The Voice finally acted on it And, um, and he wasn't in The Voice for a year or two. And he, boy was he irate, and boy were there a lot of dealers who didn't like that. So the art world is pretty okay, especially the commercial art world, is pretty okay with its conflicts. And I think it's um, on those of us who are independent of the commercial art world to value our independence and take advantage of it. <laughs>
0: Many thanks to our critics, Catherine G. Wagley and Tyler Green. Criticism and Conversation is a series by Momus the Podcast and is produced and hosted by myself and Lauren Wetmore. This episode is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae and production assistance by Mitra Shirim. It's brought to you with the help of the Canada Council for the Arts new chapter grant and is syndicated by NTS Radio.